Today on Labor Relations Radio, second episode of Between the Lines, where we take a look at some of the top labor union news stories from across the nation. Here's our top four stories this week. Number one, on the eve of a strike that could have involved thousands of workers in Pennsylvania and Illinois, Caterpillar and the UAW have reached tentative agreement. But there's more to the story. Number two, AFT's Randy Weingarten is screaming mad about student loan forgiveness, and we'll figure out why. Number three, President Biden has nominated Julie Sue to be the new Secretary of Labor after Marty Walsh skated off to join the nation's 1% and rake in a reported $3 million a year as the executive director of the National Hockey League's Players Association. Number four, and finally, the Poisonous Pro Act has been reintroduced into Congress, and Bernie Sanders is on a tirade. Thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. Let's get started. You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. So I mentioned a while back when we did our first episode of Between the Lines that I did not want to overcommit by doing a daily podcast episode on the news. However, this week, there seems to be some pretty big stories out there that deserve some more attention. Here's the first story. On the eve of what could have been a very large strike involving approximately 7,000 workers represented by the United Auto Workers, the UAW and Caterpillar have reached a tentative agreement. According to a UAW statement on the union's website, quote, The UAW's bargaining team has reached a tentative agreement with Caterpillar Inc. before the contract expiration. Members at four locals in Illinois and Pennsylvania will review the tentative agreement and vote at upcoming ratification meetings. No details will be publicly released and we will have no further statement until after those meetings, end quote. While no one except Caterpillar and the UAW negotiators knows exactly what's in the tentative agreement, on Monday, before the TA or tentative agreement was reached, a group called the Caterpillar Workers Rank and File Committee released a statement calling for a 50% wage increase as well as transparency in the negotiations, stating, quote, there is no legitimate reason why rank and file workers have been kept in the dark on what's been being discussed for months. Management knows, the UAW heads know, the workers are the ones being excluded from the discussions on the contract, end quote. And then after the tentative agreement was reached, in the wee hours of Wednesday morning, the same group put out another statement saying, There can be no doubt the tentative agreement hammered out behind the backs of the rank and file will utterly fail to meet workers' calls for major improvements in wages, benefits, and working conditions. Workers should organize immediately to demand the release of the full contract terms, not just the UAW's bureaucracies, self-serving highlights, and at least two weeks to study the agreement. Now, two days later, the same group apparently got some of the contract details and and published some of it. And here's what they put out this morning. According to the UAW's highlights, the six-year contract proposal would contain wage increases 
totaling just 19%, an average of just over 3% a year. The wage increases would be distributed as follows, 7% at ratification and 4% raises for each for three other years with only lump sum payments in the other years, which do not increase base wages. Then buried on the final page of the highlights under benefits, there is the following statement, 2% annual increase in active employees' premiums and 1.8% increase to retirees' premiums. According to the group, this would mean a significant portion of our raises would be eaten up by increased health premiums and retirees already facing extremely difficult financial situations on limited incomes are in no position to absorb higher health costs. Now, the Caterpillar Workers Rank and File Committee then goes on to ask if these are the highlights, how much worse are the lowlights? Now, I should mention that according to the committee statement, Caterpillar is also reportedly offering a $6,000 signing bonus. However, beyond all this, each of the Caterpillar workers rank and file committee statements raise some interesting points that unless you've been in a labor union or on the management side of the, the bargaining table, most workers, and especially union free workers, might never know or realize. In addition to the fact that Contract ratification votes are not a legal requirement under the law, and sometimes members don't even vote at all. When it actually comes to contract ratification votes, most union members typically do not see the full tentative agreement, or rather the fine print, until after they voted to accept or reject the contract. The vast majority of time, union members are voting on the summaries of a tentative agreement provided by their union leaders. And I know this from both personal experience as well as three decades watching this happen time and time again to other workers. And by the way, I should mention also that the Caterpillar Workers Rank and File Committee appears to be a socialist organization as their statements, each of them, have been posted on the um, WSWS.org, which is the World Socialist website. However, this group will often, the WSWS.org, uh, will often post articles that kind of tell us what's really happening uh, behind the lines or between the lines. In any case, moving on. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Headline from the Washington Examiner. Randy Weingarten screams student debt is not fair outside Supreme Court. Quote, the president of the country's largest teachers union joined a protest outside the Supreme Court on Tuesday saying the reality of student debt is unfair. Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, attended a student debt crisis center's rally on Tuesday in response to the court considering challenges to President Joe Biden's $10,000 forgiveness plan for people making less than $125,000 per year or households earning less than $250,000 annually. Fox News reported that the student loan forgiveness is estimated to cost taxpayers about $400 billion over the next three years, according to the bipartisan Congressional Business Office. So let's hear what Randy Weingarten has to say about it. And frankly, and this is what really pisses me off, during the pandemic, we understood that small businesses were hurting and we helped them and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. Big businesses were hurting, and we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. All of a sudden, when it's about our students, they challenge it, the corporations challenge 
Okay, there is so much factually and morally wrong in that vitriol-filled diatribe and her lack of logic that it's going to take a moment to unpack this. Number one, for Randy Weingarten to compare student loan debt to businesses that were forcibly shut down during the pandemic by government edict through no fault of their own and the government providing loans to them in order for said businesses to stay afloat is what is referred to as a false equivalency or faulty reasoning. One would think that a former teacher like Randy Weingarten would know that. Or maybe she does, and she's just pulling one over on the lemmings, listening to her and clapping like seals in the audience. Remember, whether you agree with it or not, and whether you're on the left or the right, the government killed the economy during the pandemic. That is a fact. It is indisputable. Businesses did not have a choice, and the pandemic police were all over the place to make sure the edicts were obeyed. And in fact... Some of you may recall, Randy Weingarten was a big supporter of keeping kids out of classrooms for as long as she could. But for her to compare government force and recompense to people who have voluntarily put themselves into debt by getting loans in order to go to school is flat out wrong. No one is forcing students to take on debt to get an education that, in many cases, is a waste of money. Number two... As one who leans a little bit libertarian, let me just put this into a bit of a personal perspective. I'm personally against the Marxist ideology of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. That said, when you have the government taking money from people who do not have college degrees, blue-collar workers like mechanics, construction workers, hotel housekeepers, truck drivers, etc., and who have gone out into the world to earn a living without spending tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to be indoctrinated by Marxists in college classrooms, having to pay for that with the government confiscating their hard-earned wages through taxes, that is nothing more than literally theft, robbing blue-collar Peter to pay for college student Paul's mistakes. That's like asking an A student to forfeit her hard-earned grades to the student who slept in the back of the classroom of life. My kids should not have to pay for your kids' stupid mistakes and vice versa. I would not expect your kid to pay for my kids' stupid mistakes. That is theft. It's not only wrong, it's immoral. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Our third top story this week is President Biden's nomination of Julie Sue to replace Marty Walsh as the Secretary of Labor. Now, in a prior episode of Labor Relations Radio, we covered Ms. Sue and her part in blowing up the gig economy out in California through California's catastrophic anti-independent contractor law called AB5. And I'll include that episode in the links under the audio portion of this episode. However, for those of you who are just catching up, Marty Walsh, who prior to joining President Biden's cabinet as Secretary of Labor, was once upon a time the head of the Boston Building Trades Unions, a blue-collar guy, before becoming mayor of Boston, before President Biden tapped him as labor labor secretary. And as was reported, through the month of February, Marty Walsh decided to take a job as executive director of the National Hockey League's Players Association, which makes him a newly minted member of the 1% gang. Now, because the 
NHLPA is a Canadian union, which means that because Canada has no financial disclosure laws for unions, we don't actually know how many millions Walsh will be raking in, but reportedly it's about $3 million a year, and likely more since that number comes from an article back in 2010. So Miss Sue, who as number two at the DOL, has always been a top contender. And there's been a couple of others floated out there. Sarah Nelson from the Flight Attendants Union, uh, former mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio wanted the job, and a couple others. Well, Miss Sue got the nod on Tuesday of this week to become the next Secretary of Labor and is now awaiting Senate confirmation. And while union leaders were literally applauding her nomination at the White House on Wednesday, her nomination is not without controversy, as we noted in an article earlier this week. And there are close to 60 million Americans who do some form of freelancing or gig work or who otherwise known as independent contractors who should be very concerned with the Sioux nomination. In fact, Americans for Tax Reforms, Tom Hebert, states that, quote, Sue has an extensive record of anti-freelancer, anti-independent contractor views, and is more than willing to use government power to impose her radical agenda on American workers. Sue was an architect of California's Assembly Bill 5 law, which forced Golden State independent contractors to reclassify as W-2 employees. More than 90% of California's independent contractors opposed reclassifying as W-2 employees before Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom signed AB5 into law, end quote. One of Sue's most outspoken critics is California Representative Kevin Kiley. Here's Kevin Kiley in an interview on Newsmax earlier this week. Joining us now, California Congressman and member of the House Judiciary Committee, Kevin Kiley, with us. Good to see you, Congressman. Um, you and several of your California colleagues uh, in the House sent this letter to the president opposing Sue's nomination even before Joe Biden nominated her. Tell us why she shouldn't be leading the Labor Department. Well, because her tenure in California was a complete disaster. That's why those of us uh, who are serving and representing California uh, wrote this letter as we experienced it firsthand. Uh, I mean, President Biden uh, appointed someone who is uh, literally the worst possible pick uh, for this position. If he just chosen a name at random from the phone book, uh, he would have done a lot better. Uh, Julie Sue has three gigantic strikes against her, each of which is on its own disqualifying. Uh, number one, after Gavin Newsom shut the state down and uh, put uh, millions of people out of work, her unemployment office failed to deliver people the unemployment checks they were owed, making it so many people couldn't put food on the table for weeks uh, or for months. Number two, as this was happening, as hardworking Californians couldn't get their unemployment checks, checks were flying out the door to hardened criminals who perpetrated a $32 billion fraud scheme uh, because she failed to take basic fraud prevention measures. And number three, she was the architect of one of the worst labor laws in United States history, AB5, which has cost countless Californians their jobs by banning uh, independent work. Uh, And so, you know, she was Gavin Newsom's labor secretary. The big picture here is Gavin Newsom is saying again and again, California is a model for the nation. And President Biden seems to be believing him with this pick. Now, as most people know, Miss Sue still has to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. However, as the Senate is controlled by the Democrats, unless a couple of Democrats refuse to confirm her, it's likely that Julie Sue will become the next Secretary of Labor. 
You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Our fourth and final story deserving some attention today is that the pro-union, anti-worker, anti-jobs bill called the PRO Act, which stands for the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, has been reintroduced into Congress for the third time. Interestingly, since the last time it was introduced, AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka died, and Democrats have since renamed the bill the Richard Trumka Protecting the Right to Organize Act. So on Tuesday, Democrat Representative Bobby Scott from Virginia and Pennsylvania Republican Brian Fitzpatrick introduced the Poisonous Pro Act in the House of Representatives, and shortly afterward, Senator Bernie Sanders introduced the bill in the Senate. Here's Sanders at a press conference earlier this week. And now it's my pleasure to turn the mic over to our Senate champion for workers, chair of the Senate Helps Committee, Senator Bernie Sanders. Well, Bobby, thank you very much for all the work you have been doing in the House. Let me thank uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer for being with us, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, thank you. Uh, Senator Patty Murray, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, uh, and all of the workers from the SEIU, UFCW, thanks very much for being here. Uh, Let me also thank Liz Shula, the president of the AFL-CIO, representing 12.5 million workers throughout this country. Liz, thank you very much for what you're doing. Uh, Let us be very clear. The American people are sick and tired of the unprecedented corporate greed and illegal union busting that is taking place throughout this country. They are sick and tired of massive income and wealth inequality and the fact that CEOs today of large corporations make 400 times what their workers make. They are sick and tired of unprecedented levels of corporate profits while at the same time, 60% of our people are living paycheck to paycheck. The American people want to know why it is that despite huge advantages and huge advancements in technology and worker productivity, every worker in America today is producing far more than 10, 20, 30 years ago. The average worker in our country today makes about $50 a week less than he or she did 50 years ago after adjusting for inflation. Got that? Huge explosion of worker productivity, real dollars making less money. Number of reasons for that reality. The fact is that the federal minimum wage has been stuck at an abysmal, embarrassing $7.25 an hour. Together, we're going to change that. that corporate America has shipped millions of good-paying jobs to countries all over the world where they're exploiting poor people. We need a trade policy that works for all, not just the few. But the most important factor as to why workers are not advancing economically is that trade union membership has gone down by about 50% since 1983. And that is unacceptable and that has got to change. At a time when unions today are more popular than they have been for decades, we have got to make it easier for workers to exercise their constitutional rights to form a union. Not complicated. And most importantly, 
We have got to make it clear that corporate CEOs, even if they are billionaires, who are at the heads of large multinational corporations, you know what? They have got to obey federal law and end their union busting. And that is why we have got to make the PRO Act the law of the land. Under this legislation, we will empower the NLRB to substantially penalize corporations and hold their executives liable for violating labor laws. Under this bill, it will no longer be cheaper for corporations to break the law than to obey the law. We will ban captive audience meetings that are designed to intimidate, coerce, and threaten workers who support the formation of a union. We will prevent corporations from denying a first contract to workers who have successfully voted to form a union through binding arbitration. In America today, at a time when we are seeing, and here's good news, more and more workers wanting to join unions, it is unacceptable that over half of workers who vote to form a union don't have a union contract a year after their union victory. That will change under the PRO Act. Under this bill, once and for all, we will end the permanent replacement of workers who go on strike. Under this bill, we will override so-called right-to-work laws that have eliminated the ability of unions to collect dues from those who benefit from union contracts. Under this law, we will end the ability of corporations to misclassify workers as independent contractors or label ordinary workers as supervisors to prevent them from organizing. Under this bill, we will restore, rebuild, re-energize, and reinvigorate the trade union movement in America. And if we're going to grow the middle class in this country, that is exactly what we have to do. All right. Well, there's actually much more to unpack with Sanders' statement than there was with Wine Gardens, and I suspect that we're going to have to do a full episode again on the PRO Act and kind of do a deeper dive, as this is just the tip of the iceberg. As most of you probably know, the PRO Act is a complete rewrite of labor and employment law here in the United States, and while it would undoubtedly help unions, it'll also harm workers and potentially kill their jobs. However, let's just cover a few of Sanders' points that he mentioned during his PROACT presser. Number one, the CEO salaries that Sanders is talking about stem from the AFL-CIO's often misreported executive pay watch, where once a year, the AFL-CIO reports on the largest publicly traded companies across America. And reporters are often too lazy to actually dig into the data and report the rest of the story. Here's the actual data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, pulled off just before I I came onto Labor Relations Radio to record this. As of May 2021, there were 3,402,300 top executives in the United States. The majority of them are not millionaires, and they're certainly not billionaires. In fact, according to the BLS data, The median pay of these top executives was $98,980 per year, or slightly more than twice as much as the $45,760 median pay for all workers. That is a far cry from the 400 times more that Sanders is talking about. The reason is, while there are super rich CEOs 
they're very few in number when compared to the 3.4 million CEOs of small and medium-sized companies throughout the U.S. So when Sanders is using something like the PRO Act to talk about you know, CEO pay or CEO pay to talk about the PRO Act, at best it's faulty reasoning. And the problem with doing that is that the PRO Act is a one-size-fits-all bill or law. If enacted, it'll apply to your mom and pops just like it will apply to large mega corporations. The second thing that Sanders mentioned is that under the PRO Act, so-called captive audience meetings will be banned. Well, in all honesty, that's not going to do much to help unions because, quite frankly, it will shift employers' resources to inoculating workers prior to them ever getting at the door. And as one who does classes with employees about the cost, the risks, the ramifications of unions, having voluntary versus mandatory meetings is not that big of a deal. And frankly, I'd rather talk to people who want to hear the information that those are who are closed-minded to it anyway. But the real reason that unions and their political pawns like Sanders don't want employers holding meetings, if they could ban them all, they would, is that they don't want employees hearing both sides of the decision. Again, we're going to go into a deeper dive on this at some point down the road, and I'm just hitting the points that Sanders made in this speech. The third point Sanders makes is that the PRO Act is preventing employers from denying workers, or unions to be more specific, from getting a first contract. And what he's referring to is the government under the PRO Act would be imposing contracts on businesses if they can't get contracts within 120 days. That's written into the PRO Act. There's 60 days of of negotiations. If there's no contract after 90 days, they go into uh, mediation. And then if they can't get a contract at 120 days, then they go to binding arbitration. Government-imposed arbitrators would decide what goes into the employer and union's contract. And the reason for this in the background is that in 1935, when Congress enacted the National Labor Relations Act and President Roosevelt signed it into law, it mandates under the law that an employer and a union are both obligated to bargain in good faith about wages, hours, or working conditions, which means they have to meet at reasonable times and places with the intention of reaching an agreement. However, the obligation doesn't compel either party, the union nor the employer, to agree to a specific proposal, nor does it require either one to make a contract. There's nothing mandated in the law that says there has to be a contract once workers are unionized. So under the PRO Act, what what the Democrats and unions want to do is they want to have the government impose contracts. That means that a business won't be able to negotiate a contract that meets its business needs. And once the government arbitrators impose a contract, employees won't even have the right to accept or reject it, like the Caterpillar workers are right now. If workers don't like the government-imposed contract, they likely won't even have the right to strike. So for them, it'll be either like it or leave. Now, what he's not explaining is that the PRO Act edges also closer to European-style sectoral bargaining, similar to what California is contemplating right now with the fast food industry, where the the government is going to dictate what type of contracts it goes into or what the employers and the unions are going to go into, and they're going to compare it to other like contracts in the industry 
whatever that industry is. Sanders does mention, however, the misclassification of workers, another point. He does not want to have independent contractors, and the PRO Act actually contains the ABC test, which is the foundation of California's catastrophic AB5 law, which killed so many thousands of freelance or independent contractors' jobs out there. The difference, though, is in California, AB5 was such a disaster that the Democrats that control the state actually had to do carve-outs to exempt certain professions. They had to do a rewrite, if you will. Once a federal bill like the PRO Act passes, that sort of modification would require another act of Congress and another presidential signature, and the machinations that that requires, it would seem, makes it highly unlikely there would be modifications. So if you're one of the roughly 60 million Americans that does gig work or gets a 1099, tough, you know what? Another point, again, because we need to do a deeper dive, Sanders talks about the decline of unions as a cause for the decline of wages. He and others like him, including the unions, refuse to acknowledge the impact of the laws of supply and demand and how immigration impacts this. Economically, if you limit the supply of labor, wages will increase, as we're seeing right now across the nation. If you increase the supply of labor, wages will decrease or be stagnant, as has been going on for decades. In order for there to be an equilibrium, there has to be a balance. And this, by the way, is not a political discussion, or it shouldn't be a political discussion. It's purely a demographic and economic discussion. And quite frankly, it's going to get worse. As boomers retire... Unless millennials and Gen Zers start having more kids, which isn't likely to happen, there's not going to be enough workers to take the boomers' place in the workplace. Thus, the reason we're seeing such increases in wages right now. There is a labor shortage, and it's likely to get worse as people like Bernie Sanders and others of his generation retire, or people of my generation retire. Another point that Sanders mentions is the PRO Act eliminates the so-called right-to-work laws, which means that in the 27 states that have right-to-work laws, workers who work at unionized employers will either have to pay union fees or be fired. Again, like bad politicians, bad ideas never seem to go away in Washington, D.C., and the PRO Act is one of those. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that's a quick synopsis of some of the major stories making headlines this week. And it wraps up our second episode of Between the Lines on Labor Relations Radio. If you want to reach out, as always, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave us a message under the audio portion of this episode. I'm your host, Peter List. Thank you for listening and hope you have a great week. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.